Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Joining us right now is Thomas Purcelli, chief U.S. economist at PGM uh, Fixed Income. He's definitive with work on the open market desk at uh, the Fed and also truly great work on wage dynamics in America. Congratulations on the new shingle across the Hudson. Thank you, uh, sir. It's as simple as I can. I want to go to your wheelhouse right away. You're talking yeah. to Greg Peters, which is really difficult. You've got to you know, prepare, <laughs> medicate he's yourself. The, he's the best. Uh, loving the pieces. You, you, you're talking to Greg Peters here, and he's going to turn to you just like I am and say, okay, but what about wage dynamics? That's what you're on the high ground on. How are wages in America into 2024? Yeah, look, I, I think here's here's the problem for, um, for, for the the backdrop with regard to wages, which look in real terms, I think we all appreciate are sort of you know performing decently. The the challenge though is if you have real revenue that's moving sideways, right? Which it is, um, and uh, you have which obviously is a, a function of the consumer that is um, you know, sort of sort of slowing down to some extent. Um, how do companies respond to that? How do companies respond to real revenue moving sideways, wage pressures? firming up um, a bit in real terms, I, I think that to me, that's a, a, a perfect recipe for companies to go after um, labor, particularly if it means you're going to get a margin compression, which is something that you know we've been talking about for a while. And I think, Lisa, you and I talked about that last time I was on. Um, that to me is a challenge as it relates to sort of the, the 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 labor dynamic in the United States. To translate this, yeah, there are going to be layoffs. That's basically what you're saying. Yeah, is absolutely. That if you see this incredible margin compression, if you see costs going up, yep. and you see consumers pushing back on prices, yes. the next step is people are going to lose their jobs. How much pushback is there actually to pricing if we're still seeing robust service-to-side inflation, as this yep. report just suggested? Yeah, So, we, and what we know is that wage pressures, um, again, remaining firm in real terms, 
but it's coming in the context of inflationary pressure that's now slowing down. I mean, th- this was this two tenths that we got. I get it. Um, uh, you know, uh, um, firmer than 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 expectations, but that still doesn't change the trend. The trend of inflation is actually moving slower. Um, so that means that the, the pass through is becoming much more difficult for companies. Well, but this is we're seeing this. Uh, you know, we saw this with American Airlines and Spirit yeah. earlier yeah, this exactly. morning. So the pass through is getting more difficult. And but, uh, sorry, no, no. I was just going to say, Lisa. I, I, I think it's such an important idea. Not only do you have that idea, this dynamic, where the pass through is becoming much, much more complicated, but you know, just just look at what some of the retailers are have been talking about. I mean, the consumer is, is now trading down. Um, right. I mean, just in the context of these wage pressure, uh, these uh, inflationary pressures that are out there, I think it's such an important idea. The problem with it is, and this is what I'm struggling with, yeah. and I think a lot of other people are as well. We were saying this six months ago. We were saying that consumers were going to push back yeah, and that savings were going to be beaten down. Yep. And suddenly, uh, you know, we were going to see, uh, you know, a recession. It didn't happen. And the data totally. just keeps surprising to the upside with this yet another surprise, the upside in core. How can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so I think there's a really easy way to explain it. So, um, in fact, there's a couple of ways to explain it. So, one, the the idea of excess saving is real, right? I mean, and, and the consumer still working that down. So, let's just be clear. The consumer has had a massive pool with which to sort of dive into. Excess savings was one of those ideas. The other was credit. I mean, credit usage has been, you know, sort of off the charts. I mean, you're looking at revolving debt that's now running at a trillion dollars. Um, and and so the consumer has been able to sort of perpetuate the sort of the consumer um, um, backdrop as a result of these two ideas. But just to be clear, that now is sort of drying up a little bit, right? Excess saving continues to fade. It's not gone. It continues to fade. Um, banks are now actually getting pretty stingy as it relates to how much credit they're willing to sort of lend out. Um, and we can see that in, uh, um, uh, uh, obviously, uh, um, uh, banks' willingness to make these kind of loans. Um, and so I think the whole th- – th- this, 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 this backdrop is drying up, right? The ammunition is drying up for the consumer to some extent. What, what I think is so important here is – with Robert Tipp coming on in the next hour with yeah. John, you've got to turn to a bunch of bond animals with the ambiguities between your economics and their portfolio management. Yep. Can you assume a disinflationary tendency – means price up, yield down in bond portfolios? Is that just a given? Yeah. So I think this is a really important idea. W- one of the things that we've been talking about at, at PGM is this idea that um, rates can stay high, rate, rates can stay pretty elevated. And, and I think that you can have rates remain pretty elevated. I mean, when I think about sort of the Fed's reaction function to all of this, um, uh, you know, and again, I get it on, on CPI day, we're talking about inflation. Um, but the the thing that I keep on coming back to, and right. I'm trying to bring it back to this today here now, is the labor backdrop. Because I think when push comes to shove, I think the Fed's going to be very responsive to the labor backdrop. So I can easily make the case for the Fed to engage in an easing cycle. Now, I think when people say easing cycle, I think they immediately think of, hey, this big aggressive easing cycle. It's not going to be that. I think it's a dynamic where the Fed cuts back. Their easiest path within asymmetry is to yep. go longer. Yes. To stay elevated and go longer. I agree. One hundred percent. And so, to me, that's that. That's sort of the big challenge here for the Fed. It's. I, I think it doesn't have to be a big aggressive easing cycle. If it's not going to be a big aggressive slowing in economic come activity. Come in twenty five or fifty beeps and just sit on it through twenty four. I, I, I think that's exactly right. So, we, so our call has been: you can easily see a dynamic where the Fed cuts. You know, call it fifty to seventy five basis points over the coming year. Um, and and I think that that's how you sort of get to this this dynamic where rates still remain pretty elevated. Which is the reason why. 
why I wonder if yeah. Goldilocks and soft landing is the best case scenario for risk assets, or if it's actually the worst case scenario for risk assets over the longer term, yep. particularly corporate credit, when you face off with this idea of refinancing. What's your view? Is that potentially problematic? So uh, it, it can be, right? I mean, I think the rollover risk idea um, will, will become a challenge, but that's not a challenge for necessarily right now, right? I mean, a lot of companies done a, have done a great job of terming out their debt. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about at, at PGM and, and um, uh, Dalip, my, uh, my, my boss, uh, I think he's been absolutely fantastic about highlighting this really important structural idea that's out there. I mean, it, which is something I've been talking about since you know, my, my prior life. I think that the pieces are in place for productivity to really kill it. Um, I think that's going to take time to develop. Right. Um, and I think that, Lisa, is, ha is basically that, that's yeah. another really important idea to, to insert into your, your, your question. We got to go. When you go across the Hudson yeah. River, does Peters let you use the Hinkley picnic boat he's got? <laughs> you, are you using the little Hinkley thing that takes you over to PG? I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to be around him. Okay. Tom Purcelli, thank you so much. <laughs> Say Robert Tip as well. He'll be here later. Mr. Purcelli is with PGM uh, Fixed Income. We are doing the best we can on this. And when you have Mark Gurman and Ed Ludlow leading the charge, it is best in world analysis of this. And what Bloomberg Surveillance has done is get away from the blah, blah, blah and actually talk about what it means for the company, what it means for the stock, and frankly, what it means for America. Mr. Forty joins us now, senior research analyst, D.A. Davis, and he is a neutral on Apple. Let me cut to the chase. I, I thought some of it was fascinating and the rest of it was sort of eh. But Tom, Tom, to me, the key thing is what does it mean for the broader Apple ecosystem? I mean, I think there's, when you, when you have storage, everybody's complaining about two terabytes of storage in iCloud. They pop that sucker out to six to 12 terabytes. Little things like that below the headline. What's yesterday mean for the Apple ecosystem? Sure, so I think that what I thought was most interesting is that they're taking a de facto price increase on the Pro Max. Uh, they're not offering the 128 megabyte, megabyte model anymore. So it's $100 more uh, to get an iPro Max. And then the dongle, uh, you teased it before, but the fact we're talking about accessories, not the phone, is right. good and bad news. The good news is that it should be accretive to margins. The margins on a $29 dongle ought to be fantastic. <laughs> For the ecosystem, I think that you may not see the incremental new buyer this year, but as you pointed out earlier, the wireless carriers seem to want to subsidize their 5G networks which is also right. good news for Apple. I got eight so some good and bad. Yeah, I got eight ways to go here, Tom, and John and Lisa have more intelligent questions. They got a three nanometer A17 chip. Is it enough for someone to upgrade in China? Is it enough for someone to upgrade sitting to my right here in New York where he's adamant he's not gonna fall for the fanboy baloney? Is, it a, is that new chip enough to upgrade? I do not believe that it is. So when I was thinking about all the buzzwords and all the new things in the iPhone 15, I was chuckling at titanium and how there have been titanium <laughs> golf clubs for some time now, or how they're essentially, no one's pointed out that they're offering OnStar. And uh, so I'm concerned that there's a, a lot of small incremental adjustments, but there's no one item that I think is going to get you to wait in line 
you know, like we used to for an iPhone. So, Tom, you know the bullish thesis. The bullish thesis sounds like this. There are tons of people who haven't upgraded. The iPhone 15 is going to get them to upgrade. Now, Tom, you clearly don't buy into that. So let's go through your rating. Neutral, 180 price target. In the pre-market right now, we're at 176. Given the multiple that this stock has and the fact that you don't believe in the bullish thesis, Tom, I've got to ask the question why this isn't a sell and why that 180 isn't a whole lot lower. Yeah, so I do think, I mean, you still have an amazing balance sheet. So they have the potential to buy back billions of dollars of shares uh, to support the stock. I don't think they would ever raise their dividend yield to, say, 3% to attract that pure dividend investor. But the foundation is still there. And uh, I don't think that the stock is so overheated that it would warrant a sell rating at this point. There is this question, though, if there isn't anything to really catch everybody's eye, except for a $29 dongle, there is an issue of the increasing geopolitical concerns, especially as right after this launch, China came out and said that they flagged a number of unspecified security incidents with the iPhone. How do you factor that into a price target? So the way that I factor it in is about 10 percent of their revenue comes from China. They're clearly still heavily dependent on China from a supply chain standpoint. And when you think about what I'm thinking of is protectionist behavior by the Chinese government. Uh, we have protectionist behavior in the U.S. as well when you think about banning TikTok and things of that nature. But to quantify it, 10 percent of their sales are at some level of risk. And that's that's bad news for Apple. So if you're looking at right now a product that isn't necessarily going to encourage a real refresh uh, kind of cycle, where is the bulk of the revenue going to come from? Is it going to increasingly come from services or can it continue to come from just the fact that at some point this is going to break and even John is going to have to upgrade? So, all right. So there is some element of the, the, the slow to upgrade uh, consumer. But I think that this is why uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the Vision Pro. But we still think that Vision Pro, which looks to be on track for launch uh, next calendar year, they're not going to achieve mass adoption with their augmented reality, virtual reality headset. So if you don't have the next new thing and you have kind of the iPhone aging on the vine, uh, it's a challenging period for Apple. It's somewhat remarkable how well the stock's done, given that they already tipped off their, their hand that they're going to report their fourth consecutive quarter of declining revenue in the September quarter. So new products... Uh, and I guess still a foundation on iPhone and buybacks might be the things that hold up the stock on a near-term basis. And Tom, that's worth 30 times forward earnings? No, it's not. But yeah, so, so uh, it is not. The services element uh, is what enabled them to get the premium multiple versus where they were trading before. Uh, services, it's still a good story, but at some point, Either the iPhone's going to have to exceed all of our expectations or the Vision Pro is going to have to do much better than I think uh, for the stock to continue to go higher over the next 12 months. Tom, let's just finish on this line that Lisa mentioned from China. I wonder what the response will be from Apple to this, because it's not something you typically hear. This is from the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman. We noticed that there have been many media reports about security incidents concerning Apple phones. Tom, what do you think they're alluding to? Yeah, so I think they're alluding to the, the reports that uh, government workers in China are not able to use Apple devices. Um, I think it's interesting. I've been trying to figure out the appropriate chess piece for Apple in the increasing tension between the U.S. government and the Chinese government. They're clearly not a pawn. 
They're not the king. They're not the queen. Maybe they're a knight. But uh, they have tremendous sway in China, uh, thanks to their relationship with Foxconn. But I think they're getting kind of caught in the middle here on this increasing tension between the two countries. Without a doubt. Tom Ford, I thank you, sir, of DA Davidson, following the release, the unveiling, the big reveal of the iPhone 15. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Regina Mayer is Global Head of Clients, Markets, and Petroleum at KPMG with Military Service to the Nation. Regina, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Your research note is demand, demand, demand. Are the Saudis aware of the resiliency and demand that KPMG uh, projects? Absolutely. So part of the supply challenge is it's um, against the backdrop of a stubbornly robust economy. But it is also a big supply part of the equation, right? We are anticipating supply drawdowns through the rest of the calendar year, Q3, Q4. Uh, and we're in probably the tightest supply situation that we've been in 10 years, 10-month 10 crude highs that you've emphasized. Uh, but what I'm looking at are some underlying indicators. U.S. production is almost at its record high, 1284 million barrels per day against a record high of 13 million barrels per day with 17% of the rigs off the market. That's 127 fewer rigs with the Saudis intentionally keeping barrels off the market. Right now we're saying there's roughly a 3 million barrel per day supply versus demand gap because demand continues to go up. And we think OPEC's purposely keeping about 1.8 million barrels per day off the market. And there's no global relief valve in this environment. There's not, we can't rely on the SPR. There's no other source where we can we can turn on a tap and oil will flood back into the market. Given the fact that production is so high in the United States, is that an indication that yes, uh, inventories are the tightest, as you said, going back 10 years, but this isn't as much about supply as it is ongoing continued demand and that people are underestimating the strength on the other side that's also fueling some of these price increases? Yeah, so we've been talking about peak demand. Potentially, it happened pre-COVID. I think we definitely have put that in the rearview mirror. Right now, the EIA is saying 
average demand for 2023 is going to be over 101 million barrels per day. That's average. So last month, we just came off one of the hottest summers in a lot of years, and we're anticipating that's 103 million barrels per day. That's the 3 million barrel per day gap. And then the EIA is projecting it goes up to 102 million barrels per day in 2024. When is peak demand going to take place? Some are predicting it's this decade. Some are predicting it's next decade. Regardless of which decade you anticipate that it's coming, we know it's coming. So if you're a major oil company or a major resource holder, you're trying to figure out when's the last marginal dollar of additional investment that I'm going to put in to grow supply against the backdrop of ultimately that supply is going to be in excess of demand. Given that backdrop, if there is a recession or some sort of downturn, a softening in the economy, could that offset the tightness in in the oil market? In other words, could oil prices come down sharply in a surprise, even with all of these technical backdrops, simply because you do get a weakening of the consumer? Absolutely. I think if we start to see more signs that the economy is slowing down, you will start to see oil prices come back down. We are seeing the potential for supply rebuild in 2024. So it's really just this six-month period. I know there are some mm-hmm. that'll say it's triple digit for longer that's coming. I think there are bare um, signs in the market. But right now, right. frankly, it's all upside, very little downside. Regina, just one final question here. With great respect for your uh, bringing in international relations into the KPMG oil debate, does the United States of America have an energy policy? I think we have different aspects of energy policies. I think some of the things that we've just recently seen on ANWR is more politics versus substance. It would have taken billions of dollars in investment to get drilling production and then moving that material to market. We would be best served to focus on where are great sources of resources, Gulf of Mexico, onshore and conventionals, other dry gas plays. There are lots of different factors that slow down the ability for our industry to exploit those resources. I do think there's room for uh, a more coherent, more effective energy policy overall. The policy is lower prices, TK. I think that's the policy. We just want lower prices. That's kind of it. Dead on. Regina, just quickly, when does demand destruction start to kick in? Aren't we already thinking about that in the 90s? Uh, for sure. I mean, I think if price, if gas prices go substantially over $4, we're right now, we're at the end of summer driving season and U.S. gas prices are 12 cents per gallon on average higher than they were this time last year. That's probably not enough to drive demand destruction. But some of the things that you are all talking about relative to airline airfares, the pinch that people are starting to feel relative to how confident they feel about the future, how confident they feel about their savings cushions. I do see some of those pressures that could dampen demand as we move into the fall and the winter. Regina Mayer of KPMG on the oil market. Regina, thank you. Joining us right now, the gentleman from Arkansas, French Hill Republican. French, I got like 14 ways to go, ending with Arkansas football. But forget about that. Kevin (laughs) Kevin McCarthy has a football he's playing right now. I read Cass Sunstein's magisterial book, Impeachment, cover to cover. It seems like we're almost downgrading impeachment as a concept of our civics lesson. Have we ruined the phrase impeachment? Have we bastardized it? Well, you bring up such a good point, Tom, and that's how I felt during the uh, Nancy Pelosi impeachment for 
President Trump one and two, I felt like it was rushed. I don't think people collected the evidence. I don't think they even looked for the facts during those years. And that's why I was pleased to see uh, McCarthy uh, this year really encourage Jim Jordan in the Judiciary Committee and Jamie Comer, who chairs the Oversight Committee, and uh, the same for Ways and Means with Jason Smith. Do your homework. Don't uh, rush this. And so for the last uh, few months, they've asked simply basic questions about uh, Joe Biden says he didn't know anything about Hunter Biden's business dealing. He wasn't involved. He didn't have any business relationship. And what they've uncovered is that those assertions from President Biden uh, weren't true. And so that's what's led, I think, Speaker McCarthy with Jordan and Comer to take the next step to right. give them an extra clout in asking the banking and legal records they need to answer those questions definitively. Do you have any sense, as an adult in the room, Congressman, banker from Arkansas, do you have any sense that there are high crimes and misdemeanors involved? Well, one of the uh, constitutional lists of, of impeachment uh, items in the Constitution, of course, is bribery. And actually, in the whistleblower testimony from the IRS agents and other people that have come forward, uh, there is that suggestion that uh, potentially there was a bribe involved here or a cover-up of illegal activity when Vice President Biden was in office and Hunter Biden was uh, taking action here. And then it leads to the question, well, what's happened since uh, President Biden's been president. The only way to get to those facts is simply have both sides uh, present those assertions and look for the evidence and follow it uh, where it goes. Well, I, I, I look French. I know Lisa wants to jump in here. These are really important uh, questions. Where is this going to be into the Republican primary season? I mean, I understand there's theater here. There are partitions of GOP. You're in a certain partition. Where does your type of Republican want this to be in February? Well, I think uh, for all Republicans, all Democrats and all independents to get to the bottom of this quickly and promptly is important and see where the facts lay out. Perhaps uh, President Biden and Hunter Biden, their attorneys, their lawyers can prevent, uh, present evidence that uh, those suspic suspicious activity reports, the uh, LLC formations, the $21 million in payments uh, to those LLCs, et cetera, all are completely logical and don't have anything to do with uh, President Biden today or as vice president, and that'll clear up the whole matter. So yeah. I hope it's over just as soon as possible. But we want to make sure that the work gets done in an effective way, and that's what I really do contrast it with how the uh, Trump investigations were carried on by the, the House Democrats. Congressman, in your Bentonville, there probably is less concern about the impeachment proceedings and much more concern about the UAW uh, strike discussions. What this means going forward uh, for worker worker uh, earnings, what this means for negotiating power. What do you hope happens tomorrow at 1159? Well, again, uh, this administration has been very pro-union, uh, and they have uh, taken the side of the union in every legislative battle. So I think that question's better uh, left for uh, the administration. Obviously, the United States doesn't need a strike uh, right now, but uh, this administration has had such a pro-union policy in every way, stretch, and form. I'm sure the unions are feeling quite empowered uh, to take action. And that's concerning to me because I think the economy is at a very fragile, fragile moment. 
That said, I was looking at a number of reports calculating what the earnings of some of these union workers were, and extrapolating out to a 40-hour work week, it's about 35000 to $67,000 a year. This at a time where inflation is continuing to rise and where we saw the biggest drop in household real income last year going back a decade. What do you propose to actually increase wages at a time where, on a real basis, households are basically being taxed by inflation? Well, first of all, stop inflation. And we could have done that if we'd taken our foot off the gas at the Federal Reserve in the fourth quarter of 2020 instead of doubling down and buying another trillion dollars of bonds and keeping interest rates zero. And if we hadn't unleashed an avalanche of spending to where we're now spending on an annualized basis over six trillion dollars a year when we were spending in FY19, 4.5 trillion. So inflation, beating inflation is the number one way to help okay. working families. Well, but Congressman, I guess that, and I apologize for interrupting, I guess that I'm wondering what the cohesive plan is at this point, other than saying, you know, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. What is the cohesive plan? Yes, spending cuts, although it's been on both sides of the aisle that you've seen spending expansion. What is the plan in the near term to bring down inflation from your side? Well, I think the, they are linked and you can't separate them. I mean, the Fed's job's been made much harder, much harder because of the incredible fiscal stimulus uh, and regulatory burdens put on by the two years of the Biden administration. And that's why in the debt ceiling deal, we propose get more workers available for the workforce by encouraging work in the assistance programs, cut down regulatory burden, make it easier to get a project right. permitted, and cut spending and try to get spending back to pre-pandemic levels and stop having these huge budget deficits that Joe Biden has forecast. Congressman Hill, a very serious question. We are so focused on three zip codes here, the doings of financial America and the global reach of Bloomberg and all. What are you hearing from small business people in Arkansas? The unemployment rate is low. Life is great. Arkansas is stealing for a game against LSU in two, in two weeks. I get it. But what are you actually hearing from small business in your state? Well, I spent a lot of time in August talking to businesses all over the eight counties of central Arkansas. And I have to tell you that... Uh, labor is still an issue for both white collar and manufacturing where they're trying to find the right people for the right seats with the right training. And so Governor Sanders has really put an emphasis on workforce development. That's something I've worked on for the past 15 years as a bank president, as a chamber chairman, and now as a congressman. And so uh, the technical skill attainment uh, and then just the bodies, Tom, it continues to be an issue. We have low unemployment in Arkansas, and despite inflation and despite all the economic challenges, that's what I hear about both with community bankers and with individual business owners when I'm at home. Razorbacks at Tiger Stadium, TK. They're going to get past BYU. Are you, are you proud of me, French, that I know all this now? Yeah, it's just great. <laughs> uh, uh, this is, I see engagement. We're taking a baby step forward, <laughs> and the next step is to visit Razorback Stadium in Fayetteville. We'll that's up to, to you. It. We're going to make it happen. Congressman, thank you. Congressman French Hill there on thank the latest. You. An impeachment inquiry and the cost of living in America. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. 
Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, and we're going to get to Apple in the markets in a moment, is Douglas Cass of Seabreeze, who understands the bat boy for the Los Angeles Dodgers makes more than that. <laughs> I have never seen a season, Doug, where payroll matters less in baseball. The Yankees and the Red Sox, the this, this, this seats one section away from me at Fenway are $41 tonight. <laughs> for the toilet bowl in the American League East. Have you ever seen money spent to ill effect like we have this year? Never in my life. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. I think yep. we'll move on. And the Mets as well. The, the Mets, Mets even more so. The yeah. Padres are a disgrace <laughs> what they've done. Let's move on. Doug Cass, um, I, I got to talk about the Apple soiree yesterday and the idea in you as the pinata say I'm short Apple and I'm a convicted short. But here's the pro question. How do you short an iconic company like Apple? How do you actually do it? I borrow the stock. <laughs> I put in an order. <laughs> right. Do you load the boat on it or do you, no, you, no. you dip into I mean, it? How do you do it? The, frankly, the, the key to our success at Seabreeze this year and most years in our short book is that we tend not to short stocks like Apple. Uh, we tend to short no drama stocks. That's what I call them. Stocks like Starbucks, Nike, FMC, Winnebago, uncomplicated companies that sell widgets where we see the future more negatively than the consensus. So Apple is an outlier, but Apple for, you know, my position on the stock, um, it's one of my larger shorts. Uh, it's been a capital allocation, uh, story. It's been a buyback story. And as I have noted in the last decade, cash as a percent as a percent of market cap has declined from 34% to less than 2%. So the marginal impact because of higher interest rates and a higher stock price on the buyback in terms of accreting EPS is greatly diminished. Hey, Doug, so I mean, people are gonna be rushing out buying the iPhone 15, but it kind of raises the question, how is the consumer out there? I guess the consumer has a job, but other than that, how, how is the consumer doing? Well, there's 
been a bunch of distortions that have held up the consumer, um, but that is changing. Um, and I see the consumer uh, who's widely considered to be resilient. I know Lisa in the last segment was frustrated by the strength of retail, for example. They will not be in the time ahead, and I'll, I'll give you some data points. Just look at Dollar General's poor results and guidance right. that they delivered last week. Uh, secondly, uh, on Friday, Restoration Hardware, which is a high-end retailer, announced that July sales were down 19% year-over-year, and things aren't getting better. Thirdly, auto delinquency rates came out for the second quarter on uh, Tuesday, yesterday. They were at 7.3% up from 6.9%, and Morningstar is predicting 10% for the next year. In terms of your two vet bills, Tom and Ali yeah. and Daisy, my two dachshunds, uh, the three leading pet companies, Fresh Pet, Petco, and Elanco, reported in their quarterly releases that consumers are reducing their discretionary expenditures for their bets, less bones, and less treats, less chews. Um, fifthly, excess savings, as you have noted, and also in the last se- segment, has been taken down. Consumer credit debt is rising markedly. Uh, seventh, we saw American Airlines report weaker traffic this morning, same for Spirit. Uh, the rise in gasoline prices has begun to be felt. Remember, inflation on a two-year stack basis is is dramatic in terms of increase. And finally, three months ago, you couldn't find a Ford Bronco to buy. Now it's being discounted. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So all that in the background there, we've got, uh, let's call it just mixed signals on the consumer. Are you buying stocks or selling stocks today, Doug? Uh, the question to me is not whether to uh, be short, but how short I should be. Oh, okay. Quite frankly, bull markets uh, like John McClain in the movie Die Hard. <laughs> uh, but but um, uh, my warning to your listeners, and it wouldn't be an interview with you and Tom without a sports metaphor, is that risk happens fast, much like the optimism associated with Aaron Rodgers joining the New York. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Brutal. You know, there's there's Brutal. a passage in Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, in which I think it, the character's name is Mike. He's asked yeah. how he went bankrupt, and he answers two ways gradually, then suddenly. suddenly. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the same applies to the inflection points in the market and the global economy and in corporate profits, especially when the distortions are so pervasive. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it was Friedman who said in, in 1959, in a joint session of Congress, that monetary policies operate with a long lag and with a lag that varies widely from time to time. So because of a number of the distortions, investors have grown complacent, and that lag between tightening and a downturn has become longer than usual, but we're moving ever closer, as I mentioned in my consumer observations, to seeing the impact of uh, tightening policy. Paul, I opened the Lagarde interview in Jackson Hole with that quote from Hemingway Mm -hmm. because she used it in a speech in April. And this is really, really important. The suddenly, which is the uh, understanding of experience and gray hair. Right, exactly. Well, I've got plenty of that. Doug, um, if you're short, is this a short-term trade or is this something you're going to let play out over time? I think we have um, real problems with regard to the distortions of uh, the last uh, let's say the the COVID post COVID period. Um, uh, Nietzsche wrote that reality is captured in the categorical nets of language only at the expense of fatal distortion. And 
I think that the outgrowth of years of excessive monetary largesse and um, zero interest rate policy, when followed by the need to raise rates so quickly and sizably, combined with some evolving and some revolutionary market structure changes, have led to worrisome distortions in the economy and our markets. I wrote a lengthy piece on thestreet.com about distortions yesterday, and Rosie, Dave Rosenberg, came back with an email to me saying that he agreed and that investors are not cognizant of the tail risks that have been delivered mm. by the distortions. And just to summarize them, um, some of the economic distortions have been uh, increased banking industry vulnerability uh, from the standpoint of both profits and capital. Uh, it, it made it possible for investors and lawmakers to ignore bulging deficits and a, uh, over $30 trillion national debt load. It's produced a threatening public and private sector loan reset cliff, which was also discussed in the last segment as the cost of cop capital has abruptly risen, has led to fiscal and monetary policy that has artificially goosed consumer savings and pulled forward consumer spending, and it's disrupted the labor market, and finally it's temporarily frozen uh, the for-sale existing home market, which has artificially inflated real estate prices. And you know what right. the structural concerns I have are. Well, um, the proliferation of zero uh, days to expiration yeah. options. I mean, someone told you five years ago that 60% of the daily options traded would have a maturity of 24 hours or less. You would have been laughed off right. out of the room. And then, of course, we have quant strategies, which distort and exaggerate the yeah. market's move. I think basically zero interest rates have lowered the intelligence of both borrowers and lenders. A lot of people yeah, would agree with that, point. particularly, again, with gray hair. Douglas Kess, thank you so much. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.